Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. A couple of months on, uh, ago on the show, uh, Anne Applebaum, the staff writer at The Atlantic, was a guest talking about a moment in the middle of the 19th century when America was the future and Japan was the past. Uh, she talked about a moment, this is a, a piece she wrote for The Atlantic called The the coronavirus called America's bluff. It was a very influential piece. She talked about a moment in July 1853 when an American uh, Admiral Commodore Matthew Perry sailed into Tokyo Bay and shocked the Japanese into realizing that America was indeed the future and that the Japanese needed to discard their past and catch up. So 170 years later, it seems as if things have been turned on its head. America is no longer the future. Uh, and instead, the future is Japan. Uh, Japan is the future, at least, is the thesis of my guest today, Matt Alter, an American journalist who's lived in Japan for more than 20 years, has a fascinating new book out called Pure Invention, how Japanese pop culture conquered the world. So, Matt, have we turned a full cycle? Would, uh, would uh, Commodore Matthew Perry be turning in his grave? I think you could say that, yes. I, um, I think he would have been shocked to see how Japan had flourished and grown in the uh, 170 years since he arrived. And, you know, it's very difficult for modern people to understand just how shocking it was when Perry's ships showed up in Edo Harbor. I mean, it was the equivalent of a UFO showing up over London or, or DC. Um, just ridiculously advanced technology, an alien race, and it changed everything for them. It was like an anime story, right? <laughs> it was. It was absolutely just like something out of an anime or a, uh, a manga or something like that. And uh, yes, I, but I think the Japanese would be equally shocked to see how things developed because Japan's becoming the future, uh, Japan's modernization was certainly part of a plan, but becoming the future in the way that it did and becoming this sort of aspirational image for the rest of the world is absolutely something that was not planned. It was something that played out very gradually over the post-war era. Yeah, and I what I found really interesting about your book and your thesis is, of course, Back in the 1980s, in, in, at a time pre-Apple of Sony and Honda and all these other dominant Japanese corporations and technologies, Japan was universally seen as the future. Um, and then it hit a wall. Uh, but your argument is that it didn't really hit a wall, that it reinvented a culture which has, in a weird way, colonized the West. Or rather, perhaps you could say that it got more interesting after it hit the wall. It got more relevent. Uh, the, the, the arc of Japan's 
development over the post-war era was one from total devastation at the end of World War II. There were no major cities standing except for Kyoto. Every other one had been leveled in uh, bombing missions. Uh, And for many years after World War II, made in Japan was a joke. It was a, a synonym for crappy, cheapo products. But it was in the 70s and 80s when Japan refined its manufacturing prowess and started to disrupt Western industries like electronics industries and car industries, one after the other, that it got this kind of image of being a economic rival to the states and actually grew into the world's second largest economy, which was pretty incredible for a nation that had been literally brought to its knees only a few decades before. But then Japan hit what's called the lost decades. In 1990, its stock market plunged, uh, its real estate bubble burst, and suddenly all of this promise of prosperity was just gone, evaporated in a minute. And that was a really transformative moment for Japan. You write about Japan in a, in, a, in a particularly engaging, original way. Most people, I think, in the West think of the fail, failed Japanese experiment in terms of industry. Yes. But you, you focus on the Japanese tradition and prowess for play, for the making of toys and for the making of technological toys. Why is gaming and playing and toys so central in Japanese culture? Well, what I focused on in the book are what I call fantasy delivery devices. They are products that are specifically designed to kind of nourish our dreams. And why that's important is because the things that we make and do in real life are often the way there is paved by the things we fantasize and dream about. So by these Japanese products so decisively uh, taking over the global consciousness, they in effect rewired our realities in the same time. And that is, I'm talking in uh, uh, kind of broad terms now, but when you start looking very specifically at what I mean by a fantasy delivery device, things like the Walkman or Hello Kitty products or video games, these profoundly changed the way that we interacted with our uh, surroundings and the way we spent time in our daily lives. Yeah, and it's intriguing in your narrative that you suggest that this, this, redefinition of what what it means to be human in the modern age came not out of Japanese victory in the Second World War, but out of defeat. Or certainly economic failure in the 1990s. You know, the really interesting thing is that during the 1980s, when I was still just a teenager, I would tune into the TV and see imagery of American senators smashing Japanese radios and Detroit auto workers smashing Japanese cars because they were terrified that Japan represented this economic future that was just completely uh, unavoidable. But it was. It crashed. Everything crashed in 1990. And when that happened, all of the people who had been hyper-focused on Japan's economic prowess suddenly washed their hands of it. But this is exactly when Japan's cultural clout started to soar. Things like manga and anime and video games you talk about. The 90s are when those really started to uh, percolate into the global consciousness. And how much of that uh, cultural renaissance was bound up in the economic collapse of the 80s? Was the lost generation also the inventor of this new culture? Well, as I think young people who realized very quickly that their uh, the triumphs of their parents' generation would not be available to them, 
they quickly uh, pivoted and started to create new tools out of what was available to them, which were consumer products. Uh, and the ways they started using these things in new ways, whether it was Japanese schoolgirls uh, repurposing businessmen's pagers into primitive mobile texting devices, or whether it was the way that alienated young men disappeared into uh, increasingly uh, vibrant fantasy worlds, the things they did turned out to be precursors of things that young people all over the world would do when a similar economic apocalypse befell them in the late 2000s. We've all heard the stories, of course, and whether they're true, you can tell us, I know you're based in Tokyo, of of Japanese kids, schoolgirls sitting around a table and not talking and texting each other. Is there something about Japanese culture that lends itself to an embrace of the virtual? But isn't that what teenagers all around the world do these days? It's definitely the case that I encounter a groups of Japanese kids who are all quietly playing Pokemon Go outside rather than like running around or doing things. But I think you see this kind of behavior happening all over the world. It's not unique to Japan. You know, uh, the science fiction writer William Gibson in uh, the year 2000, which sounds so far away and far flung, doesn't it? But it was 20 years ago. In the year 2000, he wrote about encountering schoolgirls mobile texting on the precursors of smartphones in Tokyo. And he's like, "How? Do, what are they texting about? Who are they talking to? And he framed it as this kind of uniquely Japanese development. But a few years later, the iPhone debuted, and now we're all doing the exact same thing. Yeah, and so, Gibson, of course, famously said uh, the future already exists. I'm probably misquoting it. Yeah. It's something, the future already exists. It's just not equally distributed. So exactly. He, he was a, a, a tourist of the future, perhaps uh, uh, America's greatest futurist, really, of the last 25 years. Yes, Yes, he was one of the people who I follow in the Walkman chapter because he's one of the first people to grasp that having this portable electronic escape device was a precursor to all of the electronic escapes that we would be using uh, in the decades to come. It was the Walkman was literally the inspiration for him to come up with the idea of cyberspace and cyberpunk uh, novels. Uh, Matt, as the parent of an anime-obsessed teenager, what is it about anime? that is so profound, so addictive, so culturally transformative? Well, anime has always been a sort of visual language for outsiders. It's always been about a quest. Its stories are largely centering around quests for justice and finding people who are uh, can be comrades in arms. And I think that really appeals uh, to tweens and teenagers in particular. And for a long time in the West, there was no illustrated or animated entertainment of any kind made for that audience. There was only Disney. And once you graduated from Disney movies, the next time you'd go see them was maybe when you took your own children to go see a Disney movie. But the, um, the, when the, a flood of anime coming into the Western marketplace in the 90s created this whole new uh, genre of illustrated fiction that young people could thrill to in the same way Japanese kids did for many years before that. I'm curious, Matt, how do you think your thesis will be uh, interpreted outside Japan, in China or Korea? The idea of Japan not being the past, but being the future and having this profound impact on global culture. 
Well, I think China in particular, China in particular, is is deeply interested in the idea of soft power and uh, what you might call gross national charisma. Because while China is a titanic economic superpower right now, it has kind of an image problem, and it's one that Japan has not suffered, in spite of actually having been in an armed conflict with the United States and and the West seventy、uh, some years ago. So I think there's going to be a lot of interest in the book, even from people who are、uh, or countries that are traditionally ambivalent to Japan, because it's a study in what's known as soft power,、uh, the idea that you can、uh, convince other people and other nations to share your values and ideals in a very non-violent and non-threatening way. So. History isn't repeating itself with with China. You don't think that China is,、uh, or China is Japan thirty、uh, years ago, because that's a,、uh, an argument that a lot of people make when they kind of write off China now. Sure. Well, you know, China certainly is fulfilling the role, and and Korea as well、uh, are fulfilling the role of the manufacturer, the factory of the world that Japan did thirty years ago. But the cultures are wildly divergent. The histories are wildly different. So it would be very reductive, I think, to say that China is the Japan of thirty years ago.、Um, China is a military rival to、uh, America and the region in a way that Japan never was, because Japan was completely、uh, stripped of its military powers after World War II by America. So Japan's、uh, rivalry with the states was always framed in terms of economics. It was never framed in terms of a global world order. A shift in the you know the balance of power or anything like that. It was purely economic, and China has a lot more baggage from that standpoint. One of the things, is,、uh, as a, as a non-Japan expert, but someone who's fascinated with the culture and with the country, that I've always been intrigued with is is the role of women in Japan. On, on one level, of course, the culture is pornographic, and it seems to be a culture dominated by men, and yet. In your book, you suggest that that women, in some ways, are driving pop culture as profoundly as men. Oh, absolutely! I really, really wanted to capture the voices of female creators and female consumers in my book because they typically tend to be glossed over in both、uh, economic histories and even a lot of cultural histories about Japan.、Um, So you know whether it's the way that women created this new sense of style in the form of kawaii, cute culture that we see most specifically in Hello Kitty products, or whether it's the way that Japanese schoolgirls literally became not only Japan's but by definition the world's、uh, bleeding edge early adopters of mobile technologies in the early nineties. Those you you cannot. Describe Japan's rise as a fantasy superpower without discussing the key role that women played in it, which is equal to, or even in some cases,、uh, for instance, in illustrated entertainment, even more than、uh, male creators. I think. And would you be as bold to say that this is a, a sort of a unique kind of, of Japanese feminism, or is that the wrong word? Well, you know, it's、uh, it's a unique form of Japanese women expressing themselves. It's、uh, because they had tools available to them, like a marketplace for manga and anime, or、uh, you know, the the cities, the playground of Tokyo and Osaka, and these mega cities、uh, on a level that the West really didn't have.、Um, and with those tools, you know, people are able to innovate, whether they're male or female. 
But what I found was really interesting was the different ways in which they innovated. Women tended to focus on making and creating products that brought people closer together, uh, while men tended to make products that were more either physical gadgets or gizmos or things that you could escape into, uh, such as you know otaku culture and things like that. So it's it's an interesting dichotomy, and it's something the story of uh, Japan cool is one that you can't tell without talking about not only male and female but all genders and uh, the the great diversity uh, that contributed to it. Interesting that you bring up uh, otaku. Um... Uh, you suggest that in association with otaku, and you might define what that means, uh, that Japan has become a canary in the coal mine for late-stage capitalism uh, in the sense that it's this precursor of 4chan culture, of this alienated, angry uh, underbelly of youth, the kind of universalization of Dostoevsky's underground man. Uh, well, you might, you might, maybe I exaggerating a bit here, but maybe, no, no. You you, maybe you can define what you mean by otaku. Yeah, well, let's talk about otaku for a second. So that word emerged in the uh, early 1980s to describe what was then an unthinkable and new demographic of young men and women who had emerged who were refusing to graduate from their childhood pleasures in the form of reading manga, watching anime, collecting toys, and things that were seen as juvenile, but that these young men and women had started to incorporate into their lives as part of their identities. So this these people were on the outskirts, on the fringes of Japanese society for a very long time. But after the crash, after Japanese society kind of retracted in on itself economically, after all of the promise of the uh, golden bubble era had been taken away from young people, it was these super consumers, these hyper connoisseurs, as I call them, who kind of remained the last people standing in the consumer economy. And simply by virtue of consuming the things, continuing to consume the things that uh, they loved, they transformed entire marketplaces in Japan. And now we are seeing this same thing playing out abroad. Post-Great Recession, you're seeing tons of adults who are continuing to watch Marvel superhero movies or indulge in childhood pleasures like coloring books or uh, remember the cupcake fad of a couple of years ago? Or how about there's an entire term called adulting now? Like we're not adulting. I, I want to kind of abdicate my adult responsibilities and retreat into the pleasures of childhood. The otaku pioneered all of that decades before it became a thing in the West. But there's a darker side to otaku too, which is the 4chan culture you write in your book about Gamergate and this new digital underground man culture of anger and hostility to all forms of convention, which you suggest has a precursor in Japanese culture. Well, 4chan is what's known as an, an anonymous image board. Uh, it allows anybody to participate without uh, registering who they are, and they can kind of shout into the void without ever being tracked. Um, but that entire system, and this isn't widely known in the West, 4chan is actually based on a piece of Japanese software. In fact, it was uh, translated. It was machine translated using Babelfish, uh, and that is the foundation of 4chan. It's a Japanese piece of software. And 4chan uh, and, and the, the, the Japanese software that's, that uh, 4chan was based on was in turn used in Japan years earlier uh, to make 
anonymous image boards that developed in much the same way 4chan did in the West only years earlier. Do you see then, particularly in the coronavirus crisis um, and the collapse in many ways of the economies of the West, the increasingly darkening economic horizon for young people and college graduates, do you see a lost generation emerging in the West uh, in a similar vein to the one in Japan? Well, I think it can be argued that that generation has been lost almost since 2008 with the Lehman shock and the uh, Great Recession, uh, You know, when uh, Western kids and certainly ones in America started to realize that they would not be as successful as their parents' generation. Um, Gen Xers like myself, we kind of suspected it, but if you're a millennial, I think you know it. And so I think you can argue that the lost decades are already playing out in the West right now. That's the distant thunder, I guess. Uh, the people were the people in the, the Tokyo Harbor in July 1853 when Perry, Perry's feet, fleet fired their guns. The people were terrified and they said it sounded like distant thunder. So now we're hearing a similar kind of thunder 170 years later and it's equally disturbing. Is that fair? Yes, I think you could say that. But, you know, along with that thunder, the Americans also brought kegs of whiskey and other forms of entertainment that the Japanese uh, aristocracy, uh, when they encountered it, it, it profoundly transformed the way they looked at not only the Americans, but themselves. It triggered them to transform, to catch up. So as stressful as that situation was for them, and as stressful as the situation we're all going through right now is, I think the one lesson that we can take from Japanese uh, during their lost decades is that the only way out of this is to create. It's to make our own new tools to uh, pathfind a way through this strange economically apocalyptic landscape that we're finding ourselves in right now. Uh, one way to, to get out of this is to read your book, which is really <laughs> That's good. another uh, way. <laughs> yeah, Pure Invention, which is just out. Uh, but finally, Matt, what else? A lot of people are going to be listening to this who aren't familiar with Japanese culture. Uh, what else should they be reading uh, or perhaps watching? I've been uh, immersed in Cowboy Bebop, which I very much enjoy as, as apparently a classic anime series. What should people be reading and watching? Well, I'm a big fan of a book called Ame Tora, and it's written, uh, full disclosure, by a friend of mine named uh, David Marks. And Ame Tora, and it's A-M-E-T-O-R-A, is about the rise of Japanese tastemakers who are reinterpreting American fashion and reviving old styles and basically transforming the global fashion world in the process. It's a kind of pinpoint uh, specific version of the exact same types of things I'm talking about in my book. Uh, things like how denim uh, was basically reverse engineered by Japanese craftsmen. And now the world turns to Japan for blue jeans that used to be indelibly associated with America indelibly. So that's a, a, that's a book I really recommend to anybody who's interested in seeing how cultures can project uh, their values through the things that they make. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com 
where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.